When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 2nd, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about the conclusion of the NBA Conference Finals, the finals rematch between the Spurs and Heat, and Steve Ballmer's $2 billion purchase of the LA Clippers. We'll then be joined by the inimitable hockey historian Stan Fischler to talk about the upcoming Stanley Cup Finals between the Rangers and the Kings. We'll close things out with an interview with Bob Bradley, who coached the U.S. men's national team at the 2010 World Cup and whose tenure as the manager of the Egyptian national team is documented in the new film American Pharaoh, which premieres on PBS on June 16th. Joining me from New York this week, he's fresh off some manner of Scrabble tournament. It's Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. I can finally talk happily about Scrabble. I went 6-2 and two in Brooklyn. I think it was being back in Brooklyn, Mike Pesca host of The Gist with Mike Pesca. Did you, uh, did you sleep uh, till Brooklyn, or were you wide awake during the tournament? What was your strategy in terms of, how, did you nap a lot the day before? Don't you think that that's really important, by the way? It absolutely is. A little yeah. workout and a yeah. nap. Ooh, okay. huge. I finished second, I gotta say. Six and two, but I finished second on spread, on point differential. Still won 100 bucks. So it pays to run, up, run it up on your opponent. Man. You gotta try. Yeah. Yeah, you never hold back. The show's on you today. You're buying for everybody. Yes. <laughs> Love that enthusiasm. Uh, our membership program, Slate Plus, you should subscribe if you're not a subscriber already. And if you are, thank you very much for supporting us and other Slate ventures. Um, it's $5 per month, $50 per year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. And when you do, you can enjoy such uh, Slate Plus exclusives as extra segments on the Hangup podcast. We're going to do one today. Uh, we've Whoa. got the, what's that, Mike? Whoa, didn't know that. Change of plans. All right. Better be prepared, dude. Get ready. I haven't, uh, haven't yet talked about the recommendations engine. That's important. Every afterball we've ever done indexed, every audible recommendation. And there's also the Slate Plus Game of Thrones podcast, if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, Slate.com slash Game of Thrones. You can find that. You can try Slate Plus for free for two weeks. Uh, do it up. That sort of thing, like podcast? That's what Mark Maron says. I'm copying Mark Maron. <laughs> Now, please tell us all about your uh, angst, your relationship with your dad. Well, I was a little bit worried that the Spurs weren't going to make it back 
to the finals. I've had a really, as you listeners know, I've had a really fraught relationship with the Spurs over the years. goes back to my childhood in New Orleans, George Gervin, the Iceman. There were some really dark years. Um, Are you buying any of this? Yeah, I think that you, I think that you need to uh, gather together all the people who uh, were important to you vis-a-vis the Spurs, and you know, do a series of interviews about that. All right, David Robinson, Stephen Jackson, <laughs> they're all David, here. In I always, the right, David. I always thought that you thought I was a dick. That would be your first <laughs> Marin-esque question. David's David like, Robinson. I think everybody's really nice. I'm the <laughs> nicest man ever. David, uh, I always thought I got the impression that you always thought I was short. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Very tall people think I'm short. I walked to the Final Four in Atlanta with David Robinson and his gigantic son, and it just gave me an appreciation. You know, it was just among the crowds, and it just gave me an appreciation for what it's like to be not only internationally recognizable in a forum that will definitely recognize you, but the tallest person anyone has ever seen. Um, Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for anyone who's taller than me. It must must just be an enormous burden. So enormous, these tall people. Sports are unpredictable, Stefan. That's what I always say. That's my that's my catchphrase. That's why they play the games, Josh. I that, yeah. But I said le- last week, LeBron James, he's, he's awesome because he's so consistent that he's scored 10 points uh, or more. And I think I said a bajillion playoff games in a row. Then he scores seven points. But the one thing that you generally can say is that when you get older, you get worse. But you got Tim Duncan at 38. He's putting up. Uh, scoring and rebounding numbers, roughly the same rate uh, per minute as when he came into the league. Ginobili is 36, and he's having a much better playoff run than uh, he did last year. Uh, The Spurs continue to defy predictions of their demise. It's been happening for a decade. Who would have predicted? You can't say it's a long-awaited finals rematch because, you know, everyone was writing their obituary last year. And it's not only a rematch. They're five to six favorites to win the finals against the Heat. Well, the other thing that's, uh, I think, been said about the playoffs is that it really goes to show that there are only a few teams that could win a championship, right? Uh, maybe the Thunder. But it does seem, I, I read Harvey Ayrton writing this, that it does seem like these were really the only teams who had a chance. And the Heat killing everyone seems inevitable. I don't agree with any of that, right? I think that the Clippers took the Thunder to the edge, and why couldn't that team have given a stronger run to the Spurs or the Thunder themselves? And the inevitability of it, it's in retrospect, I mean, that's who's playing. But... You know, I think that the Heat have been fantastic, but a lot of it is that the Pacers, who were better than them during the regular season, sort of fell apart. And people are, I think that I'm getting this notion that people are saying, you know, oh, so the Heat, the fourth final in four years, this has become, this is, you know, verging on dynasty or whatever. But they're one play, one crazy play, you know, a 1% chance of having lost against the Spurs. So they could be, it, it very closely could be a situation where the Heat is getting revenge on a team and they've only won one championship in these four years. And if they lose this championship, it becomes this whole big thing about, you know, are they really a good team at all? We know they won one, but they keep losing in the finals. So I think, but for a couple bounces, the idea of inevitability is totally wrong. I disagree. There are, you know, in hockey, yes, a couple of bounces. We saw that last night in the Kings-Blackhawks game. In basketball, not so much. Jim Pagels has a piece up on 538.com that argues that the NBA is by far and away the most stratified league in professional sports. Pagels writes that the bottom 50% of NBA teams had a near zero championship probability before the season even started. Overall, something called the Gini coefficient, I have no idea whether I'm pronouncing it right, G-I-N-I, of the NBA, which measures inequality within any data set, is so much higher than any other sport. 748 versus Major League Baseball coming in next at 519. And both the Aridan piece and the Pagels piece point to one factor in the NBA, that you could create more parity very simply, and that's by eliminating the ceiling on player salaries. Keep a cap, but but get rid of the ceiling, spread the very top players across the league more evenly and not have two or three stars on one team, which has certainly helped to to create the disparity. Isn't the lack of parity in the NBA a feature rather than a bug? I mean, it's LeBron James. LeBron James is a great player. There's no way to engineer a league in which the team that LeBron James is on is not going to compete for championships. And the individual talent... um, really is what rates in the NBA. And I think that 
rather than embrace that, they have actually tried to engineer parody in a way that isn't beneficial to the game. It's harder to keep uh, together teams now than it's ever been. You see teams like Oklahoma City trade away really important pieces that they wouldn't have otherwise just due to the salary cap. So do right, we but want... The salary cap is just an add-on factor to the fact that having one dominant player like LeBron or like Kevin Durant or two dominant players like like Tim Duncan and Manu Ginobili together for a long time with Tony Parker really tips the balances. It's so much more important in basketball. But you're saying the NBA would be better if LeBron was on a worse team? Like that I'm, would make it a more well, enjoyable experience? No, I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying that 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 team would still be great, but you'd have seven or eight or ten teams that would be more competitive with LeBron's team if he didn't have two great players around him if he had one. Okay, uh, Stefan, I'm disagreeing with your disagreement. The reason, and it is the Gini coefficient, and it usually is used to measure the inequality in nations. I don't know how to apply it to basketball, well, but Jim to GDP of basketball. Yeah. Good job, Bagels. But, <laughs> Bagels. But. Bagels are good, too. Yeah, but. The reason that these bad teams or mediocre teams have almost no chance of winning a championship in basketball is due to the nature of basketball, due to the fact that they're all seven-game series and due to the fact that it's also high-scoring. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. Mark Cuban has talked about it. It's not that, you know, two goals, one weird goal changes everything. Right. If once once you score 50 times a game, it's going, the law of high numbers will dictate that the better team will win. So we're talking about, like, why is basketball not good? Miami is so dominant. Miami didn't win the East. And it wasn't just that Miami receded or didn't try to win the East. During the entirety of the regular season, Indiana was better. This whole season was getting this team, this up-and-coming team, who could maybe beat Miami. Now, they fell apart, but that doesn't mean that everyone will fall apart in basketball or that the rising challenger will have that thing happen to him and that Indiana wasn't really good. Indiana weirdly, bizarrely fell apart and they were constructed not to fall apart. And if they had, you know, they had pushed Miami to the brink last year and got worse this year. That's not the usual pattern. And then we look at San Antonio and remember, Josh, a few years ago, we had discussions on the show. Hey, San Antonio is at 50 wins or whatever it was at that point in the season. And, you know, the thought was, yeah, but I think that they're going to recede. And I think Think that their age will show, and that year or for a couple of years it did. But now that San Antonio, as Duncan's getting older, is getting better, it just seems like they're this team that can't be beaten. Couple points on that: they're not. They deserve what they have in terms of wins, and any kind of structural change that you have will not address the greatness of San Antonio because San Antonio doesn't do it with with uh, great a great collection of superstars. I mean, Duncan seems like a superstar, but at thirty eight, he should have been aged out of the league, and people wanted Mano Ginobili to retire. It's all because of genius coaching, mm -hmm. you know? So genius coaching will, I don't know if that factors into the genie coefficient or if that's the, you know, equivalent of rich fisheries or oil or some natural resource, but they deserve Salmon. it. Salmon. I think that a lot of teams, I think that if you have, if you take the Thunder roster and inject a little more genius, then they definitely have a chance of winning in the West. And I think there are a bunch of teams like that. And I think in, you know, a couple years, maybe we'll look at like a team like Portland or even the Nets. Well, Nets are a bad example. They have too many old guys. But we might look at some of these teams who we uh, – Clippers, right? Oh, I, I don't think they're a have. I don't think they're a team that definitely can compete for a championship, and they just might be in it next year. They're a have now. Um, the, they, when you talk about genius coaching, Mike, I mean, that probably played a factor in the Heat-Pacers series. I mean, the Pacers were great on defense during the regular season. They were great at defending the three, and Miami just torched them. Well, Lance Stevenson is somebody who's been blamed kind of retroactively for the Pacers falling apart. But it was actually blamed at the time, like late March, when the Pacers started to do poorly. Uh, Roy Hibbert said that we've got a lot of selfish dudes on this team. And I think he might have been talking about dudes in the singular, but he wanted to just add an, X, an S at the end. So it didn't make it seem like he was just talking about Lance Stevenson. Like sources said. Yeah, exactly. So but when you call your mom moms. Uh, that's what I do. Just, you know, so it could, that could be any mom. Um, but Stevenson, now they have to decide whether they want to re-sign him. Um, there's some question about whether that would be a good decision or not for Indiana. He's the most fascinating figure of the playoffs, blowing in LeBron's ear, tapping LeBron in the face, trash talking. Then the Indiana players and coaches saying maybe that wasn't a good idea to tug on Superman's cape as if there was some causation there. And that was the reason that LeBron was doing well. Um, but I loved having Lance Stevenson in my life this pa these past <laughs> few weeks. 
I think that if it was a league of entirely Lance Stevenson's, that would be just too many step back jumpers for me. Yeah. But just yeah. having him kind of being injected to add a little frisson yeah. to the series was great. But then it's like having an ice cream cone with only the crunchies. Stefan, do I need to feel guilty? About that, or should we all, like, as a nation, need to feel collectively guilty? This is a guy who threw his girlfriend down the stairs. It hasn't been talked about that much recently, but it was talked a lot at the time. It was after he was drafted by the Pacers in 2010. He allegedly threw her down the stairs and hit her head against the bottom stair. This is, seems like maybe he's, you know, changed his life or whatever, but th- that is not, uh, you know, somebody that you want to be saying, I want this guy. In my life, I want this guy in the NBA. Is that, you know, can we separate out what this guy does on the court, his alleged bad behavior there from his, you know, alleged bad behavior, which is way, way worse off the court? Well, aren't human beings a collection of our behaviors? Um, and Lance Stevenson's behavior has been weird on and off the court since he was a kid. And it's hard to... Well, there's um, weird and then there's like hor- horrifically there's violent there's against women. Right, exactly. And no, yeah, I mean, we should factor all of that into whether we like an athlete or not, if that's what you're asking. Um, and on the court, there's certain, you know, standards of behavior that I think athletes try to uphold not only because they make them look like good people, but because it's better in terms of trying to win games. Um, And I'm not sure Lance Stevenson's behavior woke up LeBron James. LeBron James doesn't need waking up, but it looks stupid. And it probably more important than the effect it had or non-effect it had on the Miami Heat was the effect it had on his own teammates and having to roll their eyes and have to defend Lance Stevenson for behaving like a weirdo on the basketball court. Well, the announcers just seem so confused, like Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, because at the same time, Stevenson was exemplifying all of the traits that are so often praised. He's not backing down from LeBron. He was making all these shots in game six. Lance Stevenson's not afraid out there. You know, they said that many times. And it's like, oh, well, you can't, you know, do this other stuff. Like, he's just a combination of every commentator and fans, like, you know, dream for what they wanted a player and their worst nightmare just in the same package. I remember the one high school game I saw Lance Stevenson play. You watch him on the court, and I was sitting with a with 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 a with a, with a guy who was a former assistant coach at uh, St. John's, and we watched him play. And you're he's making faces, he's hanging his head, he's walking up the court, he's got that awkward shuffle. He doesn't look very athletic when he's you know when he when he's just walking. He looks lazy on the court, and that's a racial stereotype that has been you know, used against African-American athletes for time immemorial. Lance Stevenson embodied a lot of that, and it created a lot of friction and tension and suspicion about how he would perform as a basketball player if he went to college, because there was talk that he would go to Europe or, or, or play somewhere else. And then at the end of the game, you look at the score sheet, and he had 38 points. And you were like, he didn't score 38 points. But that's, that's sort of the embodiment of this guy. He looks uninterested, and then suddenly he makes a great move toward the basket. So, yes, as an NBA executive deciding whether to sign Lance Stevenson this offseason, you have to weigh all of that. His off-the-court personality, the way he behaved during these playoffs, and ultimately what, what professional sports front offices do, how much he will contribute to helping a team win. Mike, uh, quickly, what are your thoughts on the $2 billion for the Clippers from Steve Ballmer? A uh, good interview by uh, Bill Simmons with uh, Ramona Shelbourne because I thought it could only be explained by rich guy who doesn't really care how much money he has and there's no logical way that it will ever be justified. Saw an article in Time saying, "Hey, we always said that's what we said about every that's what we said about Jerry Jones. This might look really smart." I mean, I, you know, there's. It, to my mind, no way in terms of revenues and accounts receivable and expendables that this could ever, ever justify itself. They might get more money in a resale because there are many more billionaires and just the same number of basketball teams. So Simmons was saying a company like Google could carve out a bunch of games and say these are going to be some proprietary online only thing and, they, you know, leverage them to for, for their own uses. And I, I could see a company like Apple um, which just spent $3 billion for Beats head, headphones. And the analysis of that was, well, it doesn't really make sense, but they got $150 million billion in reserve. It doesn't matter if they blow $3 billion. So let's say Apple makes some huge play at the NBA and says, you know, oh, 20 games, 40 games, whatever a year are going to be 
only available in iTunes or only available in whatever sports version of iTunes. So anyway, Simmons was laying these out. I'm like, I guess, you know, they are so valuable in enterprise that maybe there's a way to leverage them into the logical. I still, I still think it's a billionaire spending his own money. But the last thing I'll say is the whole reason the sale is going through is that Donald Sterling has been declared mentally incapable, incapacitated. Now, I mean, go back. Why is the sale happening? Because he made comments of a racial nature, and it has now been shown by neurologists that he is mentally incapacitated. That seems not to give anyone pause, that the statements of a mentally incapacitated man are what has prompted the sale of his team. One who has uh, been racist for a very long time. Right. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. mental incapacity. So the mental incapacitation shows up in that it destroys the filter. It doesn't imbue him with racism. Yeah. In the first round of the NHL playoffs, the LA Kings became the fourth team in NHL history to come back from a 3-0 deficit to win a series, beating the San Jose Sharks. In the conference semis, the Kings came from 3-2 down to beat the Ducks. In the Western Conference Finals, LA overcame deficits of 2-0, 3-2, and 4-3 to defeat the defending champion Blackhawks on the road in yet another Game 7, clinching a spot in the Stanley Cup Finals for the second time in three years. The Kings will face the New York Rangers in those finals starting on Wednesday night. It's the first New York versus LA Finals in any sport since the 1981 World Series between the Dodgers and Yankees. Joining us to talk about it is the MSG Network's Dan Fischler, a.k.a. The Hockey Maven. Stan is the author of very many books, including We Are the Rangers, an oral history of the team that came out last year. Stan, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. So uh, the Stanley Cup Finals, we got the Johnny-come-lately Kings. They joined the NHL in 1967. Then you've got the Rangers. They joined in 1927. They're part of the original six. But that being said, the Rangers famously hadn't won a cup in 54 years uh, when they won in 1994. Now they've got another 20-year drought. Among the original six, the Rangers have the worst head-to-head record among the, uh, against the other five. They've got the fewest finals appearances. They have the fewest Stanley Cups. Is there something uh, that explains the Rangers' historic uh, lack of success? Is there one thing you can point to in their history? Well, there are uh, several things if you want to really get into it. Let's get into it. First of all, uh, World War II had a major factor in uh, establishing a drought. Uh, the Rangers had won three cups uh, in 1928, uh, 33, and 1940. Um, we went into the war in 41, but by that time, uh, several of the Rangers had enlisted, including uh, Lennon Muzz Patrick. And uh, the Rangers. Uh, were in first place uh, in 1942, when the uh, just right after Pearl Harbor, uh, and then all of the really good players wound up in the armed forces. When the war ended, a lot of these guys came back, and uh, the legs were gone. And the rebuilding process was very, very difficult for them. But they did make the final. In fact, they made double overtime game seven in 1950 losing eventually to Detroit. So it was a, uh, the war did a, a lot of damage to, uh, you know, what was a very, very solid, maybe even a dynastic team. Uh, the other was bad luck. Uh, and the other, actually, when you go back to it, they, uh, they, they didn't uh, build the new garden, the present garden, until 68. So uh, the Rangers had to play virtually every single, uh, what would have been a home game in the finals on the road. When they won the Cup in 28, they played in Montreal against the Maroons. They had to play uh, all their games on the road. The reason being that the circus would come into the garden. And at the old garden, they couldn't make ice once the elephants came in. So the elephants knocked them out of the, uh, in 28, in 33, they won the uh, Cup in Maple Leaf Gardens. Same thing. The Elephants knocked them out. Same thing happened in 40. They beat the Leafs in Maple Leaf Gardens. And this business of once the circus came in, the Rangers went out, was a continuous thing. For example, in uh, 50, they played the Red Wings in seven games. Five of those games was in De- were in Detroit, and the other two were in Maple Leaf Gardens. They didn't play a single home game. In, uh, in that seven-game series, 
single home game because of the elephants. Now they can make the transformation overnight, the circus, and then to a game. So uh, those are a couple of factors. <laughs> well, you know, the elephants. I mean, what about the bears, the clowns in the car? It wasn't well, just the, the elephants. elephants. <laughs> the reason why I say the elephants is that uh, one of the best evening papers in New York uh, up through the 60s was the World Telegram, and they had a wonderful sports artist named Willard Mullen. Mm. And uh, every time the Rangers made the playoffs and they had to... Uh, uh, play on the road, Mullen would do this terrific cartoon, and he he always centered on elephants, not lions, not tigers, and not the clowns, and that's why we, we those of us who remember, say the elephants booted the rangers out of the garden. Now, the rangers did come tantalizingly close a few times in the 70s, 80s. They weren't terrible all the time. In 79, they made the finals and lost to Guy Lafleur and the Canadians. So there's also management at work here, and the gardens management has been notoriously erratic, to put it uh, mildly, over the last uh, you know three four decades. Well, start with the uh, team that uh, played the Bruins in '72. That was an excellent hockey club, and um, that was the Gilbert Rattel Club with Jockerman and Villamure in goal. There's the, the gag uh, line, right? Goal again. Yeah, and, uh, and Emil Francis was the manager. And uh, I remember Roger Baird telling me more than once, more than once he said the problem was that Emil Francis did not uh, have enough tough guys on the team. Call them goons, call them cops, whatever you want to call them. So that when they go go up against a team like Bobby Orr and the Big Bad Bruins, and you have uh, real tough guys like Ted Green and Don Ory, and Gilbert said if we had a couple of tough guys, we would have beat the Bruins, and he's right. So that was one management mistake. Another team that had uh, cup possibilities was the team uh, 56, 7, and 8, when you had Andy Bathgate, you had Gump Worsley, you had Harry Howell, you had a bunch of Hall of Famers on that team, but you had a crazy coach in Phil Watson, and he drove them nuts. He was like a, a French-Canadian version of Tortorella. And finally, in 58-59, these guys practically quit on uh, Watson, so that was a management mistake, having a guy like Watson coaching. So there were mistakes, and, uh, you know, those things happen. All right, let's talk about coaching for a second, because in analyzing the series before us, I think you gave the goalie edge to the Rangers and also the um, how fresh they were. Obviously, the Kings are tired. But you also said that the Rangers had the edge in coaching. And my question to you is, that might be apparent up until the playoffs, but are there tactics to be used in the Stanley Cup Finals that, will, that we're really going to see one coach out-coaching his rival? Well, how do you think the Kings bounced back when they were down three games? Obviously, Sutter make made uh, significant changes. If you go back to the only team that ever won four in a row in the finals, only one team ever did that in the finals, and that was the Maple Leafs of 41-42. And what Coach Day did was as dramatic as anything he benched his leading scorer, Gordy Drillon, Hall of Famer. He benched his best defenseman, Bucko McDonald, and in place of his leading scorer, he put in a minor leaguer named Don Metz, who they brought up from Pittsburgh. And in place of McDonald, he put in a rookie named Ernie Dickens. And guess what? Don Metz became the scoring star, and the Leafs won the cup. So coaches make... Very that was and that was in the final for crying out loud when he was down three zip dramatic move turned the whole thing around. So you said uh, recently that um, this was the best spring of hockey since uh, 1951 in your recollection. Um, maybe first start talking about 2014. Why has this spring been so amazing? The uh, the one word that really to me is that the one that sells hockey is exciting and these have been very very exciting uh, matchups uh you know when you get a guy like Sid Crosby involved and uh, and uh, he goes bye-bye and uh, and Malkin and you get very tight games and you have a lot of uh, heart throbbing sudden death games and uh, and 
And combine the excitement with the quality. See, the quality of the game now is extraordinary because these players have never skated faster. So you're seeing a lot of really excellent plays at high speed. You look at the uh, Dominic Moore goal, the uh, game-winning goal against Montreal. That was a fourth line out there, and yet it was a very extraordinary bang-bang play. Very creative. And uh, we're seeing this all the time. So you're not uh, one of these uh, fellows who thinks that the game was better back in the day. The game was always better. It's a different kind (laughs) of game. Comparing the 1951 hockey, which you neglected to ask me about, and today's How was the 1951 hockey? Sorry. Comparing these two is like comparing tangerines and Cadillacs. It's two different elements. Everything about the game is different. Goalies didn't wear masks. Uh, you had uh, players never sh- slapping the puck, wooden, flat wooden sticks with flat blades. Everything was different about the game. But I'll tell you one thing, it was as exciting then in its own way as it is now. But it's a different game. Was Bill Barilko a Cadillac or a Tangerine? Bill Barilko was my hero, but do you know what happened to him? No, 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 no. tell me. Bill Barilko is one of the most tragic figures in sports history. He scored the sudden-death winning goal, won the cup for the Leafs, and he disappeared with a dentist friend in a uh, plane in northern Ontario. It took him 10 years to find uh, the bodies. The plane uh, crashed uh, on takeoff when they were trying to leave... uh, the uh, northern Ontario bush, and uh, Bill Barocco was never seen until the body was found. So that was a very, very sad thing. He was he was a defenseman like uh, no other. I can't think of a guy today who combined the toughness, the body-checking ability, and just the whole package the way he did. Stan, these two teams in the finals are not thuggish. They are not bruising teams. The Kings particularly had a lot of offensive firepower, very elegant. Where do you where do you fall these days on the how much toughness and fighting we need in hockey and, and how the game has evolved? Well, uh, legitimate fighting as opposed to illegitimate, which is when you have two goons like a Colton Orr and some other Schlemiel uh, say you want to go and they drop the gloves and go. That's a phony fight. Uh, somebody may get hurt in it, but to me it's not what the game is over. Legitimate fights are ones like you saw in the Montreal series when there's a reaction to a, a dirty play, uh, and and uh, and that sort of becomes a chain reaction in terms of uh, the teams being angry at each other. And um, remarkably, you don't see too much of that in the playoffs. But uh, uh, one of the greatest mass uh, brawls, continuous brawls, was the 1950 uh, Leafs-Red Wings when Gordie Howe nearly got killed, and the Red Wings thought it was deliberate uh, butt-end by Ted Kennedy, and of course it wasn't, but that's not the point. They wanted to get even. So fights happen in the playoffs, but usually with good reason. So, Stan, you're also a Subway historian. I believe that Stefan wanted to ask you a Subway question. That's okay. Go ahead. I do. All right. Stan, you wrote once that the uh, you missed the token, and you love the sound of the turnstile. For me, though, the sound that I cherish is when you're on the IND line, the F, the B, the D, train's pulling out. The first three sounds that the train makes sounds like the first three bars of There's a Place for Us from West Side Story. Have you noticed that? And what other sounds of the subway I wrote you love? that. I wrote that. Uh, I was interviewed Nashua. I was interviewed by a guy from Newsday about five or six years ago, and that's exactly what I told him. And uh, that is a fact, and it's a uh, you know uh, it's a very unusual coincidence, and that's why I'm kind of surprised that uh, I'm really surprised that an, uh, other people haven't written about it because it's very unique. It's also a sign that these cars are not very well built, but that's another story. You know, I mean, uh, you know, when I'm on the radio talking about it, it's not the same as listening to it. But to me, the rhythm of the rails is uh, a lot more, uh, a lot more fascinating. Uh, Stan, thank you very much. You predicted the Rangers 
to win the finals? Are you going to eat any uh, part of your wardrobe if they don't win? <laughs> uh, well, I didn't say I'd eat my hat, but uh, hats are uh, out now. It's too warm, so uh, maybe I'll eat my scarf. <laughs> but uh, Rangers in uh, six might even be five. Might even be five. I believe, I believe you wrote Prepare Our Parade on Twitter, Stan, so keep tweeting. We love it. Okay, take it easy, guys. Thank you. All awesome. Right, Thank you, Stan. Stan Fischler is a broadcaster for the MSG Network. He is the author of We Are the Rangers, an oral history of the team. Buy it today. And, and 90 other books. 90 other books, including <laughs> ones about the subway. Many ones. He wrote about a book subway. during our interview. <laughs> and it was about my poor interviewing technique, actually. All right. <laughs> the bad interviewer. The Josh Levine story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That was awesome. Bob Bradley coached the U.S. national soccer team from 2006 to 2011. During that period, he went through an enormous series of ups and downs from beating Spain at the Confederations Cup to advancing out of the group stage at the 2010 World Cup on Landon Donovan's late goal against Algeria to losing against Ghana an extra time to end that World Cup run and a loss to Mexico in the 2011 Gold Cup that was followed by his ouster as coach. But none of those events compared to what Bradley experienced as the manager of the Egyptian national team, as documented in American Pharaoh, which premieres on PBS on Monday, June 16th. Bradley took over the team after the Egyptian revolution of 2011, then saw them through the tragedy of the Port Said Stadium riot, which saw at least 79 people killed. All the while, the goal was to qualify for the World Cup in Brazil, and Bradley and his team fell agonizingly short. Joining us now by phone to talk about the film American Pharaoh and his time in Egypt is Bob Bradley, who is now in Norway, where he's coaching the club Stabek. Bob, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you today? Doing well. Um, and we want to start um, back in 2011 when you were ousted by U.S. soccer after that Gold Cup loss. You were looking for the next thing. You get word that Egypt is interested in you to coach their national team. So walk us through the process that led you to take that job. After I got fired, I was thinking about club soccer and uh, and trying to figure out where I could get the next challenge. And shortly thereafter, we heard from Egypt. Uh, I was familiar uh, with the Egyptian Football uh, Association because we played them in Confederations Cup. And my uh, goalkeeper coach during uh, the time that I was with the U.S. team and also with Chivas USA is Zach Abdel, Egyptian-American. And Egypt reached out and said that uh, they had a short list of candidates, but they'd be interested to speak to me. And the next thing you know, Zach and I were on a plane and speaking to people over there trying to figure out if it made any sense. Bob, in terms of it making sense, the politics must have been at forefront in, in, in your decision-making process. You must have talked to Zach. I assume you talked to other people, contacts and, and uh, friends and colleagues from Princeton where you coached. Uh, how much did that figure into your decision to take the job, uh, both as a sort of a negative factor that this might be challenging, dangerous, different, but also as when, you, when it comes to life experiences, you couldn't ask for much more than going to this tumultuous place and trying to do something that no American has ever done? Yes, when Zach and I were there for the first few days, you got a real taste of the challenge, but also the fact that it would be a really unique experience. From the football standpoint, I'll call it football because that's what they call it there, I knew the total challenge. I knew that uh, Egypt had a great history. Uh, they had uh, tremendous success in the African Cup of Nations, um, but they hadn't qualified for a World Cup since 1990, and that this was really the, the dream uh, for all the Egyptians. Ironically enough, uh, early in 2011, uh, the United States was scheduled to play a friendly in Cairo. And shortly before it happened, events in Tyreer kicked in, and all of us uh, watched closely, thinking that we were potentially playing a friendly there early in February. That match was canceled. But when I, I checked around, I, I always heard the same thing, that in Egypt there was the, the possibility that a spark could create turmoil and that it would last for a few weeks, but that for the most part, Cairo especially was a huge city, that people 
uh, were busy, they were trying to take care of themselves, and that it was still uh, a good place to live. And so I, I, I was satisfied that uh, that we could go there and, and that my wife and I could find a, an area to live where we could have some privacy and that we could try to work to see if we could make this dream happen. And, and of course, Zach went with me, and uh, we started there in, in October. Uh, at that time, they hadn't uh, had a presidential election yet, so it was still a little bit chaotic. Um, Zach would tell me that it had changed because under Mubarak, people knew that if you stepped out of line, you'd get in trouble. And then um, during those initial months, people thought they could do anything they wanted. And so whether that meant driving the wrong way down the street or stopping traffic or anything, uh, there was just a a sense that uh, things had changed. That was my initial impression. So do you, you know, you talk about uh, ready to be a spark, and then you also right there refer to how it wasn't a spark, it was, it was tortuous. And there was, there was the protests in the square, and then there was the Morsi government, and there was the Islamic Brotherhood, and then there was the crackdown. And it's these crested and waved. Did you react to each of them? Or, I mean, were there times when different events had a big impact on your team? Or did you early on say, I'm going to have one philosophy and this philosophy, I don't know, you could talk about where it was, maybe it was borrowed from some experience you had in dealing with outside tumult, but maybe the philosophy was consistent no matter all the different changes going on around you. Yeah, I've been asked many times who, who guided me and, uh, you know, I trusted uh, Zach, I trusted uh, my other assistant, Dia El Sayed. Uh, had a small group of people there that that always helped me understand what was going on. Um, one of my great friends is Jeff Stout, is a professor of religion at Princeton. Um, Jeff uh, has some great interviews in American Pharaoh because he was always a good sounding board. But uh, realistically, uh, I. I I used my instincts. Uh, I understood that uh, to have a chance to be successful, you had to pay attention. Uh, a national team has to be connected to to the people. And so we, we discussed how at a time when all of Egypt was so polarized that we could be an example of what it meant to, to be united, to stand together. And, and the players seemed to get that. And uh, even though they had different political views, uh, still as a group, we came together in, in the right way. And uh, for me, that was the best part of the, the two years. As you were kind of alluding to, it wasn't always possible for you to take a middle way or a conciliatory way. After the Port Said Stadium massacre, you called it a massacre, which implies that there was some planning to it, that it wasn't an accident, that, um, you know, the ultras, the supporters of the Ali club who were who were killed there, you went to, um, you know, the funeral to support the families there. And I would have to imagine that, that taking that stand, there was some thinking that went into it. Um, you, you also had to have a press conference because of, you know, rumors or thoughts that you weren't supporting the Morsi government. So can you talk about, um, you know, the, the decision to call uh, the stadium massacre a stadium massacre? Uh, sure. Um, the first reports that came out uh, in many media sources made it out to be uh, football fan violence. And uh, I don't have all the answers today, but I sure knew that there was way more to it. And I felt it was important to uh speak strongly and, and these young fans went to a game and lost their lives and uh, so many of the the players on the national team were in the stadium that day uh, the locker room was used as the first aid station after the game uh, young fans died inside that locker room and, and uh, when I saw the players at the memorial days later I could tell when I saw them by the looks on their faces, everything that they had experienced. And if we were going to be in something together, then there was no hiding the fact that there was more to it. I didn't speak to specifics because there's still today many unanswered questions. But uh, on a human side, when you're there and you see what's happened, 
you have to stand strong and and to be a leader uh you can't be afraid to take a stand whether you're the leader because you're the manager of the national team or whether you're a leader because you're in government or a community leader or whatever the ability to stand up in tough moments and say um this was wrong and and stand with people that you respect i think's really important Watching American Pharaoh, you, you root for Egypt because of all of this, because of everything you went through. You went 6-0 and in qualifying for the World Cup. You were the only team in the world to go undefeated in qualifying. And then in Africa, for the final round of qualifying, they take the 10 teams, they divide them into two pots. FIFA loves those pots based on not record in qualifying, but FIFA ranking. And that put you in the second pot kind of felt like you got jobbed by having to play Ghana in the home-and-home qualifier for the final five spots in the World Cup. Uh, yes, that was, the for me, the toughest draw. Interestingly enough, uh, when Egypt lost in 2010 to Algeria, there was so much emotion that um, when this draw came around, I kept hearing uh, from people, please, not Algeria, and... and <laughs> In my mind, I was thinking, well, I understand the politics and the emotions, but uh, I think from a pure football standpoint, uh, I'd rather play Algeria than, than Ghana. But uh, that's the way it went. Uh, FIFA rankings, uh, when you go through a period and you don't play as many official games, your FIFA ranking drops. We see that with the host country, Brazil, their ranking uh, has dropped at times just because they didn't have the, the official World Cup qualifiers to play. And so we lost out on some matches uh, after Port Said. Uh, our ranking dropped. We ended up with Ghana, but nonetheless, we still had confidence. And the day in Kamasi, everything came together in the worst possible fashion. Emotions, nerves, pressure. Uh, I really felt like the weight of, of everything was, was on these players' shoulders that day and that they just weren't themselves. Uh, and so that's a day that, uh, boy, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never forget that feeling. We still managed, of course, to win the second leg, but, but only by a, a two-to-one score. So we won seven of eight World Cup qualifiers, but we just missed. And that's something that uh, is still incredibly disappointing mainly because I wanted so badly to see these players have the chance to play in the World Cup. If I could ask you about the current World Cup team and how its roster is currently constituted, yes, it's the Landon Donovan question. Answer it however you will, but uh, I understand that you're not going to want to second-guess a coach, and I understand the sensitivities your son's on the team, but maybe you could tell me your initial reaction or um, if you have any other insights from uh, your particular perspective about trying to make sense of this. Yeah, I knew that question was coming, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) the bottom line for me is simple. Uh, I was national team coach for five years. During that time, I put everything that I had with my staff to try to make a great team. At the beginning, you said ups and downs. Uh, Yes, that's true, but I'd also still say that, uh, you know, in those five years, I think with our A team, we entered four tournaments two Gold Cups, a Confederation Cup, and a World Cup. And we made three finals. Uh, We won our group at the World Cup. Uh, We won the uh, hexagonal. And when I was finished, at least in the short run, I made my mind up that uh, nothing that I said mattered and nothing that I would say would help the team now. And so I've stuck to that. Like everyone, I want to see the team do well. It's a tough group. But... uh, the rest, for now, uh, I don't go near. Well, I'll ask hopefully a less fraught question. What can you tell us about the Ghanaian team as you, perhaps more than anyone else in the world, are familiar with them having played them in the 2010 World Cup where they knocked the U.S. out of the, the tournament and then having played them in the two-leg playoff um, to try to qualify this time around? Uh, yes. Um, I want to see uh, the U.S. beat Ghana very badly uh, we know they have a talented team. When you look at the clubs that the, the top players uh, play on week in and week out, they're talented. When we played the first match in Kamasi, Essie and, and Montari had been out of the national team for some games. They came back that day 
they were very motivated uh, in the center of the field. They played well. Um, Asamo Jean, who scored the, the winning goal in Rustenburg, is still a real threat. He plays in UAE. He scores a lot of goals. They have a young striker named Mahid Waris, who uh, was on loan in France and, and is a threat. But they still make mistakes. When you, when you put pressure on them in the right way, you get chances. Uh, when I look back, I've watched the match uh, from South Africa so many times, and now I've watched both of the matches um, when Egypt played over and over. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think they make mistakes in the back. They overreact at times. Their organization isn't always great. I think goalkeeping can be hot and cold. I thought Kingston played really well in Rustenburg, and that was a big factor that day. But um, Korossi, who plays in Norway, um, for me, still makes mistakes. So I think it's a game that the U.S. can win. Um, but at the same time, Ghana has talent, and, and that has to be respected. Bob, I want to ask you one last question about watching your son play now for the national team and about Michael's decision to return to the United States to play in Major League Soccer. How do you counsel your son now that you're not coaching your son? Is the relationship different? No. Um, Michael and I have always had a strong relationship. I, I would say any player that's played for me over the years knows that uh, when I have something to say, uh, I say it to them in a straightforward, honest way. Uh, I want to see all the players that I work with uh, grow as players and as men. And when you're a father, that's what you try to do with your son. You try from the time he's little to show him the right way to do things and the right way to act. And for all the experiences that we shared in soccer, that's always the way it was. Uh, when uh, I got fired, uh, he had experienced that before. Uh, I got fired at the the end of uh, one season with Metro Stars, and, and he still ended up scoring the goal that put uh, the Metro Stars in the playoffs that year. So he, he's always understood that uh, this is part of the game. Uh, he's never spoken out about his feelings. I've never spoken out on mine. Uh, that's out of respect for the game and for all the others. Well, you are now the first American coach at a top flight uh, European League first division in Norway. Um, how is your club doing and, and how does it feel to be, uh, to be there and to be an American pioneer in a different place now? Yeah, I don't think much about this pioneer stuff. Um, you get here and, and you do what you always do. You, you start to get to know these players. The challenge here is that it's a team that moved up from the second league and everybody um, predicted that this team would go down. And so we create a, a way of working every day and establish ideas on the, on the field about how we want to play. And uh, we go to work. And we've seen... Uh, some some real improvement. I think we've shown that we play positive football and uh, with the surprise of Norway in the moment. Uh, we have 18 points. I think we're sixth in the table. And people like the way we play. Thank you so much, Bob, and best of luck uh, in Norway and uh, everything else you do going forward. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Can uh-huh. I just say one thing? Yes. I just wanted to note that from running the U.S. team, head of the Egyptians, to where you are now, we must note, it's a long way to tip a Liga. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good way to finish. So there you go. We it made Bob like Bradley laugh. Would say. Bob Bradley is the former uh, coach of the U.S. national team and the Egyptian national team. You can watch his uh, exploits in Egypt in the documentary American Pharaoh, which is premiering on PBS on Monday, June 16th. All right, it is time for After Balls. Uh, and Stan Fischler, he's like the he's like a walking afterball. That guy, there are about like uh, forty different possible afterballs in that guy, in like one sentence. In that guy, he tweeted uh, during Game Seven of the Western Conference Finals that after one period, it was like a good beer league game starring Ira Gittler's Gorillas. Hmm. <laughs> Stefan, Stefan, helpfully uh, looked this up. Ira Gittler as uh, co-author of the biographical encyclopedia of jazz. But he also, in 1973, started a hockey team, Gittler's Gorillas, which won 10 amateur league championships. Ira Gittler. We need to have that guy on next, I think, next week. Gittler or bust. Uh, so what is your Gittler's Gorilla, Mike Pesca? 
My uh, Gitler's gorilla. So how often have we come across a passage like this, speaking of the love between a professional athlete and the woman he would eventually marry? Yadier Molina's wife, Wanda Molina, met her future husband in high school in Puerto Rico. She did not even know that he was an athlete. Or then this article in Boston Magazine, which talks about the meetings of different uh, members of the Red Sox and local, actually Red Sox and Patriots. And Bianca Wilfork was a 23-year-old single mom working two jobs, one at a Taco Bell, when Vince, the Patriots' first-round draft pick last year, contacted her through the website blackplanet.com. He was a freshman at Miami. He saw her webpage and wrote simply, My name is Vince. Call me. She had no idea that he even played. Growing up in football-crazy Gainesville, Florida, she had major reservations when she found out that Vince played football. I didn't want to date a football player. I kind of actually believe Bianca Wilfork, but then you hear a lot of other things. This from LipstickAlley.com. The name of the, the quote or the post is, I didn't know he was a pro athlete when I first met him. Okay, I hear that shit a lot when I'm reading interviews about how this or that athlete met their first significant other. And I heard it recently this past Saturday when I was at the beauty salon. Another client was detailing how she was dating a Houston Texan and didn't know who he was initially, which is not hard to believe because I forgot Houston even had a football team. All right, so Lipstick Alley poster totally stepping on her own point. And so I figured out why this exists. It's because professional, you know, the wives of athletes definitely, definitely want to give the impression that they're not in it for the money and they're not in it for anything other than their love of their husband. And how do you prove that except to assert when I met him, he was nothing or even better. I didn't even know he was an athlete. But just once, just once, I want to read the paragraph that says, you know, when Shanda met Paul, she was she was quite aware that he was a professional athlete. Well, first of all, he was rippling with muscle, which in and of itself is very attractive to women. Then he proceeded to cause a stir in the Applebee's we were in as many random strangers recognized him. I was among those, by the way. Finally, <laughs> he had a huge necklace on with his number, and I approached him having Googled his salary, which was $17 million against the team option for next year. Oh, I love the guy, but believe me, I'm no idiot. This was a professional athlete, and I am now his wife. I, That's what I want to read. I would also like to read... I was just kind of hanging out, and I would have taken any pro athlete. It wasn't even particularly <laughs> this guy. I was looking right. for anyone who was a pro athlete. Just tell me uh, you're was, a pro athlete, and I will marry you. He, I found out he was a member of the Steelers, which was disappointing, given that the NFL does not have guaranteed contracts in the shortest <laughs> playing life. I was hoping to hook up with a pirate, even though they are a low payroll team. <laughs> Stefan, what is your Gittler's gorilla? Big New York Times report on match fixing in international soccer over the weekend. Crooked refs, Asian gambling syndicates, the tainted, beautiful game. But you probably didn't hear about the latest corruption scandal in another major international sport. I speak of snooker, the billiards-like game played on an oversized pool table, which may have gotten its name from the slang term for first-year cadets in the 19th century British military in India, where the game originated. According to Wikipedia, snooker has been plagued by allegations of corruption virtually since its inauguration as a professional sport. Might be hyperbole. The first professional world snooker championship was held in 1927. But for the last decade, there has, in fact, been a list of snooker players investigated for match fixing and other activities. But none has been more brazen or punished more heavily than Stephen Lee, a rotund 38-year-old snooker-er who last month had his appeal of a 12-year suspension denied. Lee was found guilty by a World Professional Billiards and Snooker Association tribunal of fixing seven matches in 2008 and 9. He deliberately lost to Ken Doherty and Marco Fu at the Malta Cup in 2008. He also lost the first frame. I'm not sure what the first frame is, but he lost it to Stephen Hendry and Mark King at the 2008 UK Championship. And the former number five in the world went down in the first round of both the China Open and the World Championship in 2009. Lee was arrested in 2010. The charges didn't stick there, but investigators found that three groups of gamblers, and these guys don't sound like the South Asian toughs who are rigging international soccer games, were involved in his, uh, in his fraud. The heads of Lee's snooker gambling syndicate were his former manager, his former sponsor, and a friend from his hometown. They bet around 100,000 pounds on Lee to lose. 
He lost. There were incriminating phone calls and texts and gambling winnings deposited into an account in his wife's name. The only problem was that Lee didn't have much of a poker face, and you can see it in his sweaty visage in clips where he apparently was cheating. Announcers were befuddled by some of his shots. One announcer described his cueing as a comedy of errors, saying he had opted for the wrong shot. The Daily Mail did a tabloid classic about the fallen Stephen Lee under the headline, Stupid, Weak, and Greedy. Behind the flash cars and boozy lifestyle, Lee lived a lie. The paper described Lee as living beyond his means and eventually desperate for money. It was a cautionary tale. He was among the world's finest snooker players, famed for his smooth cueing action, but he also drank too much, ate too much, and more crucially, spent too much. Before leaving snooker, possibly forever, I visited the wiki page for snooker player nicknames. Mike Pascal, I need some help here, Josh. I want to get your guys' opinion. Best snooker player nicknames. We've got Joe Perry, the Fen Potter. I don't know what that means. Paul Hunter, the Beckham of the Beige. (laughs) Willie Thorne, the Homer Simpson of snooker. Cliff Thorburn, the Rhett Butler of the Green Beige. Tony Meow, the cat. The cat. The cat. cat. Matthew Couch, the Couchernator. Peter Ebdon, the Ebdonator. And finally, a lot of racial sensitivity in snooker nicknames. James Watana is the Typhoon. Ah, that's okay. You like that? That's okay. And it's Mar- better than the executioner. <laughs> Marco Fu, Q-Man Fu, and finally Alan Taylor is the albino assassin. Did you say green beige? I said green beige. B-A-I-Z-E. Oh. The felt. Oh, okay. The felt. Snooker felt. Got it. The albino. A friend started calling him Silas from the Da Vinci Code, who was also named nicknamed the albino assassin. Good stuff. Josh Levine, what's your <laughs> Gitler's gorilla? So I was trying to think about which North American uh, pro sports team we've talked about least in the hang up and listen era, as I like to call it. I think all sports fans have come to know 2009 to 2014 as the hang up and listen era. Um, you guys, the steroids era. You guys think about it while I work through my reasoning. I'm going to throw hockey out of the mix because we just don't talk about hockey enough for for that to really, you know, be part of this calculation. Otherwise... the last three weeks. Well, the, the Edmonton Oilers would be your winner, I think, otherwise, uh, if we did count hockey. But if we just consider NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball, um, I think we talk about the NFL the most. Every team comes up now and again, you know, whether it's good, bad, or mediocre. I think between the NBA and baseball, we probably give baseball the shortest shrift, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Um, and after yeah. looking up and down the standings... And, and the shrift to season lengths... Uh, ratio is ridiculous. It's true. Yeah. Uh, and after looking up and down the standings, I settled on the San Diego Padres. Volo, Volo wrote something down. He wrote down Padres. Yeah. Mike Volo is your winner. It does appear that we mentioned them once in 2010 when they were off to a good start that did not continue. Uh, they did not make the playoffs. Like, do you mean like even mention or concentrate a segment on them? You mean just mention this? I looked up, projects? I did a search of hang up and listen show pages. And the yeah. only two times they ever appeared on a show page was when Tim Lincecum threw a no hitter against them. And right. then they were just like in a collection of teams that were off to a surprisingly good starts in 2010. Um, All right. I was listening to a Padres game last night, but go ahead. This is your afterthought. <laughs> uh, the Padres have been mediocre since 2009, never good enough to make the playoffs, never bad enough to be an interesting train wreck where Mike Pesco would be like, I wonder how bad the Astros are going to be this year. Um, but like every franchise, they deserve our love, attention, and respect. So what's been going on in San Diego? Let's do a quick catch up. Um, in 2010, Tony Gwynn's daughter had a very expensive wedding. Uh, it cost fi- <laughs> It cost $500,000. Plus an additional $1.35 million in jewelry. One of the line items on there, according to GaslampBall.com, the SB Nation site, it's the source for a lot of my Padres information. Uh, one of the line items was $7,500 for a living chandelier, which seems kind of reasonable to me, given that chandeliers are not typically alive. I don't know what that means, but I would definitely pay $7,500 for a living chandelier. Uh, after Johan Santana threw a no-hitter in 2012, the Padres are now famously the only team... In the majors without one, I mentioned Tim Lincecum. They've been no-hit eight times uh, while not ever throwing one. But what I did not realize is uh, that they've also never hit for the cycle. They've never done anything. Wow. So, well, one guy on the team hasn't. <laughs> it's true. 
304 players in Major League history have hit for the cycle. That's a single, double, triple, and home run in one game. They've also been cycled against six times. Um, But the Padres are now trying to get a cycle by alternative means. So they have a player named Tommy Medica, 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 Snooker, Snooker. Uh, It's something like that. Um, He was a single away from the cycle. He got all the hard parts of the cycle done. And now the Padres are trying to argue that an error that was committed by the Marlins third baseman was in fact a hit. They're trying to get a cycle by appeal. Mm. I asked the Padres. It's better than blasting a ball into the gap and then just stopping it first. (laughs) Right. Or um, like that time that Donald Royal of the magic threw the ball off the backboard to himself to try to get a rebound, to get a triple double. (laughs) That was awesome. Um, So Padres, if you want to get the respect of hang up and listen, which you clearly do, it's clearly what the franchise is hungering for at this stage of its existence. You cannot go for a cycle by legislation. We want an authentic cycle. When there's an authentic Padre cycle, I guarantee prominent placement on the podcast and no hitter. There'll be a special episode Actually, I'll eat Stan Fischler's hat if there's a if there's a no hitter. Uh, we didn't mention that Stan Fischler during this year actually ate his hat. It was alluded to. Reference without it was alluded. It was alluded to. It was alluded to. We didn't give the backstory. All right. You know, so so you got through a whole Padres after bowl without even mentioning Quackenbush, and that's why I was listening to the Padres game because they have a a pitcher named Quackenbush who captivated the imagination of a seven and five year old yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) We'd love your feedback when we talked about today. Uh, should we remember Quackenbush? Remember Kevin Quackenbush. Uh, you can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes at uh, itunes.com slash slate podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating when you're there, please. Uh, become a fan of Hangup and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our intern is Chris Leskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo, And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty. Also that Quackenbush guy. And thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.